The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. Thank you so much, Sammy, Alexis, Kathy, everybody that was part of that. We're so glad to be able to be uh, in this building, and uh, I just want to, uh, if you're visiting among us, uh, please take the time to stick around after and join us in the foyer for coffee and get to know uh, some of the folks that will be visiting with you there. And we'd love to have a record of your visit. Um, we're still, uh, still in motion, you know, we, I'm not sure where our chairs are. They're not in the Pacific Ocean anymore, I don't think. They might be in Vancouver, but uh, we're hoping that they arrive soon. And uh, we're going to have uh, rugs that run down the aisle so you can sneak out without squeaking. So you can, uh, so you can be assured that's not going to be a problem forever, but... Uh, but uh, praise the Lord, we are, we are definitely in motion, and uh, God is good to us. And uh, this morning, as we continue in our realignment series, we decided that the first month of Sundays in this building needs to be a realignment of what is the most fundamental and important things for God's people on earth to know and, and to follow. And so this, this, starting two weeks ago, we... We looked at the greatest commandment. You can't not start there. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And we started there. And we discovered as we studied that that we, we all have a tendency to assign love to something that maybe it's not inherently worthy of loving. And, and likewise, we have also the tendency to assign something that is very worthy of loving a lesser value of loving. And so we're distorted in our affections. We're distorted in our loves. And when it comes to God, we realize that God who is supreme is to be loved with our entire being, heart, soul, strength, and mind, and yet we tend to let other loves displace Him. And that's called idolatry. And so we have this natural affinity toward being idolatrous because we love other things that are not as worthy of our love. We talked about that the first week. The second week, last week, we talked about the second greatest commandment Jesus said is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And of course, so we we went from the vertical love to the horizontal loves. All other loves are on the horizontal plane. And we took that chapter in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And we realized that the thing that messes up all horizontal relationships is because somehow there's not justice, fairness. There's not mercy and forbearance. And there's not humility in walking with God. And to some degree, you're no, you know that that's really the cause of every messed up relationship that you've experienced. And, and we can take it on a very personal, private level, or we can put it on the international scale where there's no justice and mercy and humility walking with God. And we talked about the fact that that's what is needed for healthy relationship. And so this morning, as we continue in the horizontal affections and loves, we're going to look at yet another great Christian text or Bible passage. And, 
And before I, I present it to you and reread it together, I want to ask you a question. And the question is that if Jesus Himself in the flesh were to walk up to you one day to meet with you privately and say to you, what do you really want? If He were to say to you, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? You might already know exactly what you'd say because you have a prayer list that you ask Him about every day. I want you to take away this cancer. I want you to restore my marriage. I want a different job. I mean, the list could go on, couldn't it? And um, this morning, we're going to look at a scripture that presents Jesus doing just that. In fact, he does it twice. To two different people, he, he comes right out and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they both present what they want him to do, and one gets their request, and the other does not get their request. So let's look at our Bibles at Matthew chapter 20. If you have a Bible or a device that has a Bible on it, Matthew chapter 20, and um, beginning with verse 20. And I'm reading from the ESV version. I'm asking you to stand with me if you're able to. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20 and going to verse 34. And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those who, who has been prepared for by my Father. And when the ten heard about it, they were indignant at the brothers. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them, but it should not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they were out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David! And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David! And stopping, Jesus called them and said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. Immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. May God bless his word. You may be seated. These two stories take place while Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem for the last time. It is just over a week prior to the time that Jesus will be hung on the cross. 
It's an incredible moment as Jesus shows His compassion. And yet it must have grieved the Lord Jesus to hear how very immature two of His followers were that had been with Him for three years and had been taught by Him. And yet He does not shame them. He doesn't put them on the spot. He uses it instead as an opportunity to teach them about how to handle power and how to be a follower, a servant. I think Jesus comes to us and asks us what we want more often than we realize. It happens in prayer when we're alone with God. Sometimes our response is kind of like the disciples. We reveals our immaturity and it grieves Him. Someone said it this way. Someone said that when we pray, if the request is wrong, God says no. If the timing is wrong, God says slow. If you are wrong, your motive, God says grow first. And if the request and the timing and you are right, God says go. So there's four answers. No, slow, grow, or go. I think in this case with James and John, the answer was grow up. Really? I think he was saying grow. Nikki Gumbel, the developer of the Alpha program, which we're offering today right after the service in the fireside room. I uh, hope you can stay if you're a young adult anywhere in the midst of uh, that category. Um, stay with us, and we're going to begin and uh, looking at Alpha. But Alpha, on this, on this passage of Scripture, Nikki Gumbel comments, and he says that we must not think that in these two stories that Jesus was compassionate to the one and not to the other. We must not think like James and John were that it's erroneous to assume that because we didn't get our prayer answered, God is not compassionate. God was probably very compassionate to James and John in not answering their prayer in the affirmative. Because... It was rooted in self-glory, power, and promotion, and it probably would have ruined them. And what we need to understand when Jesus asks us, what do you want, is that He's not asking us what we would like to have, but He's probably more asking us, what has us? I mean, what do you really, really want? The answer to the question, what do you want, is going to reveal a dominating force in your life. Sometimes it will point out what needs to be realigned in your life because it reveals your heart. It reveals what you really want more than Him. Of course, what do you want is obvious and anyone who seems to be breaking away from the pack you know, and promoting themselves. I don't know if you're you're probably like me in this way. You have a nose for self-promotion. When you see someone else self-referencing in a conversation, self-promoting in a conversation, you can smell that a mile away. And the reason we can smell it is because we don't want to be seen that way, though sometimes we want to act that way. We just want to drop the little things that say, you know, I had lunch with so-and-so the other day. (laughs) 
And you know, you're probably thinking of someone right now that's like that. You see, there's something that happens. We get indignant at anyone that's going to rise above and try to claim the spot. And then thirdly, I think we also can all become out of touch. We can become smug and proud when we actually arrive at a place of privilege or power, we can live out of a sense of entitlement. We can be blind to the inequities around us. We can justify the advantages that we get. And we can start to lord it over without even realizing it. I think that the potential in every one of our hearts is for that as well. And we can be so blind to the fact that we all of a sudden have power and privilege and position and we don't think about anybody else around us anymore the same way. So I want to put those realities on the table in the backdrop of looking at this Scripture. But the Gospel of Christ and the example of Jesus cuts through all of those leanings that your selfish heart might have and leads you to a much higher, higher calling, a nobler calling, getting into the air of heaven where the grace of God can fill your lungs with a much more purposeful life in losing yourself to serve others. Now, in the eyes of the world, it's a great demotion to be a servant. But in the eyes of the kingdom of Christ and Jesus, it's a promotion. In fact, if we understand the Scripture that Jesus is teaching here, in God's kingdom, His rule is so radically upside down that Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Greatness is for the servants. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom. And so according to kingdom rules and principles that Jesus rules over us, power and position should be in the hands of those who have earned it by serving. That's what I, I get out of this text. We should be giving power and position to those who have earned it by serving. Not by their pedigree, family they came from, not by their position, pastor, deacon, board member, not by their personality, winsome, persuasive, not by the power they have over others or their pride. None of these things qualify in the kingdom. The Apostle Paul had most of those things. He boasted of it in Philippians chapter 3, and then he said, but all that I consider as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And what did Paul call himself after he put that aside? More than anything else, what did Paul call himself? Almost every letter he wrote, Paul the Apostle, servant of Christ Jesus. Servant. That's all. I'm, I'm just a servant now. The same word as slave of Christ Jesus. The greatness of your calling is measured not, uh, uh, sorry, measured by how humble, how you humble yourself, how you serve the needs of others, how you let go of your own agenda, how you assist someone in pursuing their agenda. Many years ago, I think it was 2002, when we arrived in Bolivia to be missionaries, we were told by senior missionaries that we had to have a maid. Now, being kind of normal Canadians, we just thought that's ridiculous. We don't need a maid. And uh, we were told the reasons why it would be good to have a maid. Uh, and so we, we interviewed some, some women, and we chose a woman 
along with the help of our colleagues, a woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth was like a family member in so many ways throughout our whole time in Bolivia. And uh, she demonstrated to us the nature of a servant. And, and what does that look like? It, it looks like someone who arrives every morning with no agenda except whatever you give her. And so whatever agenda we had, whether it was floors or, or, or food or whatever, it, it was her agenda. The nature of a servant is like that. And, and I was so conscious all the time I was in Bolivia. I was so conscious of the power inequity that existed between me and Elizabeth. I knew that if I had some rare disease or one of my children did, I could be airlifted out of there and I could be in the best hospital in North America. I knew that she would not be unless somehow we provided it. Thinking back to last week's theme of justice, mercy, and humility, um, I remember one time when Elizabeth was not getting paid by the other people that had hired her. And she kept asking me for an advance for the salary. And finally I said to her, why, Elizabeth, what's going on? Why, why do you need this? And again, I want you to know, we, we struggle with this whole thing, but we, we, we had her sit at our table. We, had, we paid her more than what we, everybody else thought was, was normal and so on. We were trying to figure this thing out. And when I heard that she was not being treated fairly in justice, I knew, I knew the group that was taking advantage of her. God is not a user. God does not, does, does not do withdrawals in your life. He does deposits. And we have to be that kind of people too. Regardless of the relationship inequity that you might find yourself in at work or home or wherever, and so I went to a colleague and I knew that he had an in with that group of people and I said, Yvonne, his name was Yvonne, I said, Yvonne, this is what's going on. I, the gringo, I don't think I can go there and talk to them, but could you do this for me? And he went and he confronted the situation and, and she got paid her back pay. She got cancer a few years back and she died last year. Um, the mission tried to help her out after we had left. The mission still kept her employed and tried to help her out, but the cancer got the better of her. Why am I sharing with you about Elizabeth? Because Elizabeth, to me, is, is in my life one of the most clear examples of a servant who just put aside everything, her agenda, and served our agenda. And Jesus said that the greatest among you must be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The, the upside-down kingdom that Jesus inaugurates is hard for us to grasp as we live in this world. And so how do we, how do we align our lives with Jesus? How do we align our hearts with this attitude of servanthood? I think there's two characteristics that... I'll, that Jesus demonstrates, and I'd just like to mention them. First one, that we can ask ourselves, is 
my service sacrificial in nature? In other words, is it self-abasing instead of self-promoting? That's the first question I would ask. Clearly, James and John, along with their mother, were moved by self-promotion. They did not even have a case to present as to why they might be considered the two that should be sitting on the right and the left in the kingdom of heaven. They didn't even have a case. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking, how they thought that they were greater than the other ten, how they would have the favored seats. Are they simply deluded by their own grandeur, or are they simply opportunists? You decide. Perhaps we see how just in the rough some of these disciples were before before the resurrection, before the coming of the Holy Spirit in the early church. Remember, these two brothers, do you remember? These two brothers, when Jesus called them to be disciples, what did He call them? He called them sons of thunder. There was a reason for that. These are the two brothers in Luke 9 when Jesus is preaching and the crowd of the Samaritans aren't really paying attention and they're not responding. Do you know what these two sons of thunder said? Hey Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them? Yeah, great approach to evangelism. This is wipe them out. I mean, these two guys are in the rough. They didn't mind confrontation. They were the two guys that along with Peter, somehow Jesus chose to be His inner circle. <laughs> you know, the two roughest, the three roughest guys were the ones that Jesus wanted closest to Him. And they rise to become incredibly influential in the early church. James becomes the first apostle to be martyred for his faith. And you know John. John is the apostle that lives the longest, and he's relegated to the island of Patmos where he writes, God gives him the book of Revelation that you have at the end of your Bible. Jesus saw them in the rough. And He had to teach them about how to be self-abasing instead of self-promoting. And Jesus said to them that, you know, the world operates like that, you guys, but you can't do that. The world lords it over. They take position and power and they, they over-dominate, but you can't be that way. Instead, the greatest in the kingdom is going to be the ones who serve. They serve without seeking to be noticed, without fanfare, without needing applause. They serve because they have the attitude of a servant, like the passage that Kathy read. The attitude of a servant. They're not just performing a duty, they have a heart of a servant. You know that in Philippians 2, in the Scripture that was read in verses 6 and 7, it says that Jesus was in very nature God. Morphe, nature, essence. He was God. It says the same word for servant. And He took upon Himself the nature, morphe, essence of a servant. And then it says, and then He was found in appearance as a man. Schema. Not morphe. Schema. The outward appearance was a man, but what was His nature? Morphe? Servant. You see, that's what Jesus wants for you and I as well. He doesn't want us to say, okay, I'll go shovel the snow. He doesn't want us to say, you know, duty-bound, drudgery, external conformity. 
stiff upper lip. When the Holy Spirit was announced in Ezekiel, and the new covenant relationship that we had with God was announced, what did he say? He said, I am going to write my law on your hearts. You're going to love to serve me. That's what I'm doing in you. Now, I know we're not all there yet. I'm not all there all the time. I know I'm not all there. I'm not all here. (laughs) But you know something? The Lord has us in that motion, in in that trajectory of sanctification where He's looking, He's taking out the affections of your heart. He's examining them one by one and He's saying, this has to also be brought to me for you to be a servant. And so is it sacrificial? That's a question that you can ask yourself. Is my service self-abasing or is it self-promoting? 1966, a 21-year-old college student arrived in Hong Kong to a place called the Walled City. A densely populated area controlled neither by China nor by Hong Kong. Nobody wanted to lay claims to this. It was a high-rise building a high-rise slum for drug addicts and gangs and prostitutes. And this young college student began to write home and she said, I love this place. I don't like what's happening in it, but I, I don't want to be anywhere else, she said. I can already see another city here ablaze with light where there will be no more crying and no more death, and no more pain. I had no idea how this is going to happen, but I'm going to introduce this city to Jesus. Jackie Pullinger spent over half a century working with prostitutes and heroin addicts, gang members. She could not have done that if she didn't have the heart of a servant, the morphe, the essence of a servant. If she was doing that, keeping a logbook of all her hours spent in wakeless, in sleepless nights, and so she wouldn't have been able to do that without the heart of a servant. And she wrote this. She said, God wants us to have soft hearts and hard feet, but the trouble with so many of us is that we have hard hearts and soft feet. <laughs> what an example of self-sacrifice. So that's one thing, is self-abasing, not self-promoting. The second thing that I see in the characteristic of servanthood that the way Jesus modeled it is, is it substitutionary in nature? I mean that. Is it substitutionary in nature? It says in verse 28, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And the word for in that Greek text means instead of many. He's going to give His life so that a whole bunch of other people that are putting faith in Him and are being found in Him are not going to have to give their eternal lives. And so, He gave His life instead of. And that's the kind of picture of servanthood. The substitutionary kind of nature of servanthood. When Jesus gave His life as a ransom, Instead of many, it does not simply refer to his death, it refers to his life. He lived and he died in a substitutionary way. Even as he walked the earth, he substituted himself. He he served the least of these. Jesus served the needs of others so they didn't have to suffer 
And if our service is Christ-like, then we serve instead of someone else having to serve. We step up so that we do what someone else would have had to do. We become the substitutes for them in things. A servant is someone who dignifies the smallest act and the most loathsome of tasks. I meant to take time this morning to read Lauren Cunningham's uh, book, uh, Is That You, God? I think it's called. He's the founder of YWAM. Staff read it last year. And I'm pretty sure it's in that book. Or else it's with a YWAM DTS team that's someone that I spoke with that shared the story of going to a place somewhere where the sewage a system had stopped working in a refugee kind of environment and none of them were fixing it, but some, all of them were still using the facilities. And it was just becoming awful. It was gross. And this DTS or this group from YWAM came in and they just said, we're going to do this and we're going to fix the plumbing. And it was that loathsome, dignifying of the lowest of tasks that opened up the way for that people to respond to the gospel. Incredible how God uses service. So a servant is one who dignifies the, the smallest act and the loathsome of tasks. And I want to commend you, church, in the, in the transition to this building. I want to commend you for stepping it up. I can see how in so many areas of congregational life and of welcoming of other people, that God has formed servants and trusting their servant hearts in you too. Servants and teams of servants that are taking care of whole responsibilities that the pastoral staff can just trust you with. And that is such a blessing. And I want to say to all of you, if you see someone doing that behind the scenes, especially not in the public eye, but if you see something like that, would you thank them? Would you just take a moment to thank them? And, and, you know, even for now, hold off on any recommendations and suggestions. They probably know what you're going to say already. They've been working on it. Just say thank you for what you're doing. And you who receive those thanks, receive it. Say thank you. That's encouraging to hear. Because that's the way we get encouraged. A few years back, several of us read the book by Don Cousins called Leadership. And he says this. He says, we don't want to use people. Usury is antithetical to the heart of God. God is a giver, not a taker. And He is interested in making deposits into our lives, not withdrawals. God is not a user. So as we think about that, I want to ask you to think about how it is that your heart is slowly being transformed into being a servant. And if you do something and you find that you're begrudging in doing it, then, then realign. Ask yourself, Lord, am I meant to be doing this? Or, or is there something just wrong in my heart? Give me the heart of a servant. In our study at our life group, we've been studying, uh, I love the illustration that the author of the curriculum uses about our emotions are like the dashboard lights. And this is a perfect example. of You know, when, when a light comes on your dashboard in your car, you can do one of two things. You can ignore it. And it's probably going to, something's going to go wrong. Or, or you can say, what's happening here? Is, 
And then you can lift the hood and check out what's going on. And emotions are like that light on the dashboard. If you feel anger over something, I mean, the ten disciples were angry. It says they were indignant at what was going on. If, if the ten of them were able to look under the hood and into their hearts and say, why am I angry? Well, it might have been that they'd discover, well, I want to be the one that's on the left or the right. Just jealousy, envy. And if the two, James and John, would have taken a look at under, the da- under the hood and saw what was going on, they might have seen that they were filled with pride and insensitivity. And if you find yourself being too easily offended, or if you find yourself that you're asked to do something and you feel, oh, that's, that's beneath me. If you can just take a look at the dashboard, if you, if you can catch yourself, if you can be self-aware enough to catch that emotion, that response, that reaction, then you have a, an appointment with God and you can go deeper under the hood and you can say, why did I react that way? What is it in me? What, what's down deeper? Because God is probably going to take you to the heart of the matter. And He's going to start to say, you know, I want you to have the heart that I had. I want you to have a servant heart. And that's what God is doing in us. <laughs> now I started with that question, if God, if Christ were to meet you and He asked you, what, what do you really want? I really believe that when Jesus asks us that, it's, it's a test on what we really want. Gordon MacDonald said this, that in the end, people will either say to God, thy will be done, or God will say to them, thy will be done. In the end, people will get exactly what they really want. If you've read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, you'll know that that's pretty much the thesis of the book as he talks about heaven and hell. In the end, everybody's going to get what they really want. And if you live this life and what you really, 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 really want is to keep having the hinge on that side of the door and self-interest and self-awareness or self-promotion and so on, then in the end, you're going to really get that. And if you learn to release all that and confess that and ask Jesus to change that, and put the hinge on the other side of the door and open your heart to the, others, the needs of others, you're going to find that God can give you not only incredible, incredible joy in this life, but also in the life to come. Let's pray. Lord, would you be merciful to us now as we've heard your word to open our minds and our hearts to the things that are being said by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that so often I confess that my, what I really want is not at all what you really want. And I confess that uh, sometimes I don't even want to align with you. But God, you're so good. You're so compassionate to not answer some of my prayers. And you're so good to, to realign me with what your will is. So Lord, would you be pleased to make out of our hearts real servant hearts, the the nature of servants. Would you find that in us so that we might have much joy in serving you and not drudgery? That your name might be exalted, Christ, and that others would come to love you. We pray in your name. Amen.